that home improvement projects either bring you closer together or separate you. And I heard this several times as we were working on this new ministry facility. But I think the truth is also for road trips. Everybody has their own method of travel. Who is in charge of the music? Who's in charge of the snacks? Where and when do you stop? Now, I'm not sure there's a right or a wrong way, but preferences certainly clash when you travel with different people. It brings something out of you, especially if you traveled a lot as a kid, and then you get married and you recognize your spouse travels differently than you, or you're traveling in a group of people. Now, see, growing up, I was conditioned that you stop for food, gas, and the bathroom once every four hours. That's when you stop. No in-between, no detours, no pulling up on the rest stops and taking in the view. It's no, you get, you're getting from point A to point B because point B is where the fun happens, not on the road. So, so you better get all your snacks, your bathroom, everything better happen at once. Now, when I got married... And I re remember a road trip that we took to Florida a few years ago, not just with me and my wife, but with her whole family and a caravan of six vehicles. You better believe that my conditioning of stopping once every four hours for food, gas, and, gas and bathroom was challenged. <laughs> It was challenged, especially with within pulling out, with 15 minutes on the road, we get the text, hey, someone's got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> okay, it was going to be that kind of trip. And then we proceeded to stop again 90 minutes later. See, in that instance, my upbringing, my history, in relationship with other people what was was just challenging because because at times I was a little bit angry I was a little bit frustrated I'm not afraid to admit that we're all people in progress and so in that instance I had to wrestle with does my history does my upbringing supersede those whom I am traveling with does that take precedent it forced me to wrestle with my own soul was the, the type of person who is going to speak my peace and speak my voice and say, now listen, this is how you really travel. We're only going to stop it. You know, you know, take that out. I mean, we had a group of 35, 40 people going together. And it also forced me to wrestle with, where is my place in the midst of all these differing relationships? Kids young and old, adults and kids all traveling together. Now, if that's my experience, just in a brief road trip of 12 hours from Kentucky at that time to Florida, imagine a whole caravan of people, of several thousand people. How do you stop? When do you stop? Is it time to set up camp, or is this just a momentary rest? My feet hurt. This was the story of the people of God as they moved from Egypt to the promised land. The land that God had painted a picture for him that said it was flowing with milk and honey. It was going to be a place of rest and retreat and blessing. 
But there was travel involved. Several thousand people journeying together. How do you stop? When do you stop? And it's interesting because for them, everything was laid out for them. They may not even have known the reason, but it didn't make it any easier. And so this is the setting we find ourselves in the book of Numbers. Thousands of people traveling by foot through the wilderness, carrying the story of God forward, carrying God's family, his culture, the type of community he's trying to create forward, and his desire to expand his family, to include all people groups, to include all people groups, to carry this story, this vision forward. So where is God in the midst of this road trip? God is at the center of the people through a tent called a tabernacle, where the cloud ascends and descends, guiding the people. And here's the reminder, if God's presence was going to be in their midst, every effort must be made to make the camp pure, a place that welcomes God's holiness, but not only that welcomes God's holiness, that resembles God's holiness, that radiates God's holiness to all who see this group of people moving. Now, if just traveling with a few cars from Kentucky to Florida, there were some visceral reactions, so, so maybe even a little bit complaining, a little bit of hardship of why do we have to stop again? Can you imagine a group of several thousand of people traveling on foot, the emotion the difficulty, the weariness at times, trying to remind themselves and look to God at the center that they were on the go with God for a purpose and a vision. Now, I said this word purity or holiness. For many people, holy is something that you call a pair of ripped jeans or a road that you drive over and are afraid you're going to get a flat tire. Those who have been in religious circles may even make the connection to a word that is used in a song. We use that word today in a song. And if you think the religious usage of holy, the most common understanding of that usage in terms of holy, tends to be morally pure, morally right, upstanding, a good person, which is part of the definition. But a helpful way to think of God's holiness is to use the sun as a metaphor. Because when we get to understand God's holiness being at the center of this people and how it is to radiate to those who are onlooking and those whom God wants to invite and include into his family, we begin to understand what some of the difficulty was on the journey to the promised land. See, the sun as a metaphor because the sun is unique within our solar system. It's powerful. It's a source of life then the sun is set apart for a specific purpose within our solar system. And you can even go a little further with the metaphor. As the sun is, as it's powerful, as it, the heat radiates, the area adjacent to that is powerful. It gets hotter the closer you get to the sun, and the closer you get, the more intense the heat gets, the more intense the power gets. And that very power and goodness that generates life then is also dangerous. Because the closer you get to the sun, it gets hotter, it gets heat. You can't fly close to the sun. I mean, you just know this on a sunny day. 
it hurts to look at the sun, and you may be blessed by the warmth of the sun on a good warm day with the cool breeze. You liked the sun. You enjoy it. But you also know if you stay in the sun too long that it will also burn you. So it's this paradox that it can bring warmth, warmth and also burn. And also as a metaphor for God, if you are impure within God's presence, it's dangerous. Not because God is bad, but because he is so good. And whether you are Israel surrounding God's presence or you're a priest who works near God's presence, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous, which means you have to be mindful of the state that you are in. And this is a problem because the people don't match up with God morally and ritually where you separate yourself, uh, this ritual purity that is outlined in the Old Testament, you separate yourself from anything that resembles death, blood, disease, etc. And if you came into contact with that, it's not necessarily sinful, but doing, or do, doing something wrong, that's another word that we use, that sinful word, a sin. Sometimes we think of that as, as wrong, or it's a better word of missing the mark. To come in contact with the disease or blood, it makes us impure, but it's not necessarily sinful for the Old Testament, for the Israelites, for God's family. What is wrong? What is sinful, though, is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And honestly, that's what the book of Leviticus was about, which comes just prior to this book of Numbers. And so it keeps the story going. Now, now the reason I, I pause... Again, to, to reiterate this idea of holiness, this idea of purity, is because sometimes it's an afterthought. Sometimes we expect others to be morally upstanding or morally right or good, but we don't necessarily take stock of where we stand. But I think we begin to understand where we stand, especially when there's dysfunction, when there's dissatisfaction, maybe even when we're on a road trip with others. And you're trying to figure out, is it time to stop or is it time to keep going? But the story keeps going. The goal wasn't just for Israel to be pure. The goal was for the purity of Israel, the ability to be in God's presence, to be a blessing then to the nations, to be in proximity to God and to take that proximity with God and allow that to shape and transform them so that others could learn what it looks like to live in God's world God's ways. And last week we saw how the people, they didn't quite get it. They, they, they complained and they compared. But the problem runs deeper than just the general population. It also was an issue with the leaders. And that's where we find ourselves in today's teaching text. Miriam and Aaron are complaining. They're complaining about Moses. Moses' own brother and sister are bad-mouthing Moses. Not just to Moses. They're bad-mouthing Moses to the people. The very person who ushered them out of Egypt, the very person who kind of led their freedom, who, who brought them out, who helped them cross the Red Sea with God's help and provision. Now Moses, or now Aaron and Miriam are saying, can you believe this, Yahoo? Can you believe this guy? 
He doesn't want us to stop when we think we should stop. No, it wasn't necessarily like that. But what they actually did is they brought up an issue with Moses' wife. Miriam and Aaron, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman he married. For he had married a Cushite woman. We're going to address this here in in a second. But they bring up something external to try to cope with what's going on internally within them. And just for an aside, Cush is modern day Ethiopian. Modern day Ethiopia. Was Zipporah, who was Moses' wife in Ethiopian living in Midian, was this a second wife after the death of Zipporah or was this a derogatory term? They brought issue about the Cushite because it meant that Moses' wife was outside the family, that she was darker. And how could God allow the leader of Israel to be outs- have a wife who is outside the family and be dark? And so they're raising this issue to kind of cope with what's happening. Because in the next verse, here's the issue. They said, does the Lord speak only through Moses? Does he not also speak through us? And the Lord heard it. Miriam challenges Moses and recruits Aaron by using the wife of Moses' skin to initiate conflict. He had married outside Israel. The very leader God embodies the heart of God by saying all people are to be included in his family. But Miriam attempts to use it as a slight. It's not even something Moses' wife had control over. They use something external to incite conflict for how they feel internally. What's interesting is the very next verse as we get kind of Moses' perspective on this. Moses, it says, was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. Now the editor of Numbers just kind of drops this in here. And so we learn something a little bit about Moses And it even seems like a very odd thing to add here. But it's actually an Easter egg. Moses will later face the consequences for his own sin of equating himself with God. But that's a story for another day. The hope is that God, in these, these three dynamics, shows how he has chosen to work. God has chosen to work through Moses and Moses to Israel and Israel to the nations. And so when Miriam and Aaron speak up against Moses, they're not just simply speaking up against Moses, they're speaking up against God. They had a longing of having God speak to them. And I think it's innate within us to want God to speak with us, to want to, to hear from God. But the desire out of alignment replaces the desire to be connected to God and to instead be in control of God. They wanted to be in control of God rather than follow his direction. See, I think it's natural, again, for we want to hear from God. But sometimes we want to hear from God because we want some inside knowledge that gives us a one-up on someone else. Because we want to feel special. And we forget who God has already said that we are. That we are already part of his family that we're already special, that we already created in His image. But this desire can get out of alignment. 
Because, see, meanwhile, God has already spoken, and we aren't sure we are cool with the role we are being asked to fill. So Miriam and Aaron wanted to realign who was in the driver's seat. They were jealous. They were after self-preservation. Why does God only speak through Moses? Does the Lord only speak through Moses? When in fact, just the prior chapter and Numbers 11, God had chosen to speak through many people. So it's not even a valid claim. They were concerned about their own place within the family. In a time of transition, in a time of dysfunction, in a a time of, of just upheaval, in a time of when things, the status quo isn't just normal. They're trying to cope with this reality. And so they attempted to use something external to reorder what God had instituted, which means they weren't trying to take the wheel out of Moses' hands. They were trying to take it out of God's. In this metaphorical road trip, they were being backseat drivers. Backseat driving is second-guessing the one who holds the steering wheel. And in their second-guessing of Moses, they were second-guessing God. They were trying to tell God how to drive the vehicle. They were saying, we think you should take a right turn here or a left turn here. Are you sure you're going fast enough? Or do you need to go a little faster? Or maybe it's the other. Don't you think we should slow down a little bit? (laughs) They were second-guessing God. Now, in this instance, Miriam and Aaron bringing up a complaint to Moses, you may be wondering, Can the leader then ever be questioned? See, Moses was never beyond questioning, though. His own father-in-law, Jethro, challenged him when he relied more upon himself. However, in this instance, the challenge came from people who are worried about their place. Another way of asking, I think, the question for Miriam and Aaron, does the Lord only speak through Moses, might be translated as, where is our place? What about me? This is what I meant when Miriam and Aaron used the external issue to incite conflict to deal with their internal conflicts. They were taking stock of the road trip. They were looking at the people of God traveling, how everything was ordered, how Moses was leading them, how they were going to travel. Even as when the the cloud ascends, it was time to leave. When the cloud descends, it's time to stay. And they wondered, what about me? How do I fit into all of this. We aren't immune to this. I think about growing up in uh, elementary school when I would get on the school bus. And it's that, that visceral, that, that, that kind of uh, emotional reaction when you step on, you, you go up the stairs and you turn the corner and you look at all the seats and you see faces of friends and others on the bus. And you're kind of trying to figure out, where should I sit? It was way easier when there was assigned seating because you just knew. I would walk, you could just, without thought, go walk down the aisle and sit in your seat. It's much more difficult, especially in elementary school, when you go, you knew the cool kids were in the back of the bus. Was I cool enough to walk all the way to the back, you know, strut your stuff and go sit in the back with the cool kids? Maybe I don't feel that cool, so I go in the middle and you look around and you see some people you don't know. Can I sit with them? Can I not sit with them? Is this open seat reserved for someone else? Because people like to sit around their friends. And if uh, the, there were two people in the seat, maybe they wanted their friends to sit behind them. 
Now, now maybe that was just me, but chances are you've had some similar type of experience where you walk into a space and you're taking stock of the room. You walk into the office and you see people by a desk talking. You walk into the store and you're just trying to kind of look around and go, where do I go? Where's my place? Can I look for the signs or the signals? I need a level of comfort here because I'm unsure. And in this moment, when Miriam and Aaron were trying to find their place, they chose to look out for themselves rather than look to the source who could give them direction. See, in times of transition, in times of wilderness, when there are disruptions, distractions, dryness, and dysfunction, our first instinct is to often look inward, and our sense of self gets shaken. We ask questions like, am I competent? Am I a good person? Am I worthy of love? And Miriam and Aaron fell into the all or nothing trap, meaning I'm either competent or I'm incompetent. I'm either good or I'm evil. I'm either worthy of love or not. We're either one or the other. And as we try to find our place, as we try to navigate the relationships, as we try to navigate the journey of life, as we try to find our way even in our own spiritual journey, we could fall into that all or nothing trap. Does the Lord only speak through Moses? See, the all or nothing identities that we can find ourselves trying to gravitate towards are about as sturdy as a two-legged stool. Clinging to a purely positive identity leaves no place in our self-concept for negative feedback. When we're challenged or we feel threatened, the moment we hear anything remotely negative, we attempt to figure out why it's not really true, why it doesn't really matter, or why it wasn't actually a mistake. Because we can only be competent. We can only be good. Because we can only be worthy of love according to our self. And then you have the flip side. The negative side of all or nothing. I'm only incompetent. I'm only a bad, evil person. Or I'm not worthy of love. Where we exaggerate the negative feedback and let it dictate our ensuing choices. See, Miriam and Aaron's identities weren't based on the competency, their goodness, or their worthiness of love. It was based on the God who was sharing it with them. They had a vital role to play in Moses' family. The competency, the competency, the goodness, the worthy of love did not originate in them. It originated with God. And he says, they are competent. They have a role to play. They are good because he shares his goodness with them. They are worthy of love because he created them. And at times, they make mistakes. At times, they make poor choices as in this instant. At times, their, their character doesn't match their, their competency. It, it just doesn't align. And God has to remind them that it's not what they can do, but it's who God is. They were needing to become aware of their heart condition because they were Moses' family. Aaron was the high priest. They had a role to play. They were on the go with God. But they had forgotten 
about the God that they were on the go with. That he was a good and loving God that provides for them. And so the cloud moved away from the tent. And Miriam's skin suddenly became diseased, resembling snow. She was stricken with leprosy. She was given the disease of bodily decay and corruption. It was considered at that time walking death. And Miriam had seriously advanced the case of leprosy instantly. Is at the end degree. And at this moment, God caused her body to reflect her heart. And Aaron's reaction to this, he almost says that, God, I, I, I'm sorry. Kind of like, but it's, it's you get caught in the act, sorry, not the actual sorry. It's kind of that half-hearted. Because what he says is he's actually more concerned about her appearance than recognizing what he did wrong. And now Moses steps into the conversation. We get the first words spoken by Moses in this chapter, at the end of the chapter. He's not spoken this entire time. He was accused. He actually left it up to God to answer his critics. But when Moses steps into the dialogue, what he chooses to do is ask God to heal Miriam. The moment Moses is accused, he's ridiculed, he'd been slandered. And then rather than retaliate evil for evil, he remembers his place as the intercessor for God's people. And so he chooses to act in that role and intercede for Miriam and Aaron. It was a prayer for his accusers. See, Moses certainly was a man faithful in the Lord's house. Even Moses' own brother and sister are forced to recognize the single driving idea through entire book of Numbers. Go with God because God is on the go to fulfill his promises. And you have a choice to go with God or walk away and experience the consequences. And so Miriam is forced to deal with that. She's sent out of the camp for seven days. But what's amazing is God heals her. He says, he says we're going to send you out in the camp for seven days to deal with the impurity, to recognize that you have misstepped. But I, he is faithful, and he is going to restore her. God allowed her to live the outward display of her inward heart and then reminded her that he was going to bring her back and restore her and allowed the whole nation to know it. See, purity and impurity collides in our everyday lives when our sense of self gets shaken. But see, there's hope. There's hope because it's not about you. It's not about me. The church is the place where we remind ourselves that it goes from me to we. And the we, though, absolutely includes you. Because God wants to work in your life. He wants to remind you who you are and the role that you have to play. But we've got to remember, it's a role that we play with others. And we've got to learn to do that with others so that we can communicate His love and His goodness to others. And it collides in the everyday because in the New Testament we meet this person of Jesus who actually touches lepers. Their impurity should transfer to him. Instead, his purity transfers to them and cleanses them. And Jesus also claimed that through them, life would go out into the world. Today, wherever you stand, this Jesus draws near to you to make 
you clean. Maybe you've missed that. Maybe you wonder, will God speak to me? Where are you, God? And he says, I am near. I have come to make you clean. But today this message isn't just for those who think of themselves on the outside of the camp and are invited back in. The message is also for the backseat drivers who think they can can determine the direction of God. See, we cannot determine his direction. Instead, we must go with him, lest we fall into the same trap as Miriam. For we are not Moses. Jesus is. We are not Moses in this story. Jesus is. Jesus is the one who intercedes for us. In our moment of weakness, in our moment of uncertainty, in the moment of of just loss of where, how, how do we figure out this God? We have a high priest who is going along with us in this journey. And in fact, there's this whole section of a New Testament book called Hebrews. It's devoted to this idea. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 10, 22 elaborates on how Jesus, the high priest, is better, even better than Moses. When he's attacked, when he's ridiculed, when we're attacked and ridiculed, Jesus intercedes. And at the conclusion of the thought, here's what the author comes to. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15 says this. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. For without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. As we try to navigate this life, as we try to figure out, how, how, do we, how do we go on this journey with God? What is my place even in this journey? The author of Hebrews gives us some concluding remarks. That we should make peace because Jesus makes peace with God for us. And that we should attack the bitter root. That we should give grace. We have this value at Generations Church that says give over get. And sometimes we apply this value to finances. Sometimes we apply this value to time. But I think we can apply this value to our relationships. The moment we feel the urge to think, what about me? Where's my place? I feel slighted. I feel unsure. We can remember to give grace to ourselves and others. Because God has given grace to us. Because in our impure state, he sent Jesus to bring us back into the family. That we have received the grace of God through Jesus. Therefore, we can trust. We can give kindness. We don't have to make up external issues and excuses to try to find our place, to justify our place. No, we can give patience. Imagine a church that practices give over get in all areas of life. That we give grace to one another to such extent that people go, how can I ever repay you? And you're able to say, you don't have to. But go with God and give grace to others. Where we replace old patterns of selfishness and thinking about what about me, we can replace those patterns and ask for help.
This is why all month long we're doing something very tangible to remind all of us that wherever we find ourselves, where we live, work, and play, God is there with us. So the moment we're frustrated, the moment we're, we're trying to, we're, we're, we're thrown off guard, the moment, moment there's a distraction and we're trying to navigate things, we can remind ourselves God is here. And he has said that I'm loved, I'm valued, and I'm good. Not because of my choices and my actions, but because of Jesus. And I can simply respond again and again by giving grace rather than looking to get what we always think we deserve. So attack that bitter root. Don't let relational division come. Relentlessly give grace because God is on the go and we want to be on the go with God to share and radiate His grace, His purposeful favor to others. Let's pray. God, You are good. I'm thankful for that. You provided a way in Jesus. We can't do it on our own. We can't earn it, God. So I'm just thankful that you moved on our behalf. That you call us loved and valuable. And then we get stories like this in the Bible where we get to see the messiness, the missteps, Remember that you still provide a way, that you are so gracious, and that you always provide a way back. Thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.